This week on Always Spaceman, Modern Undead. Written by Peter Grimwade, directed by Peter Moffat. It turns out the very best way to mind control somebody to murder someone is with a plumbing fixture. listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous husband and wife taking a critical and often socio-political look at all eras of Doctor Who. This podcast often contains spoilers, naughty language, and general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat and other adult content. With a plumbing fixture? Because the little gem looks like a, uh, a faucet. Turn faucet. Oh, I, I, that's a stretch. That's a stretch. I was looking. I was looking for something clever. Um, I was going for something that exposed brains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and then I just, I, I couldn't find a, a clever little uh, bon mot about modern undead. So, um, yay! Yeah, the nobody mo- laughed at that. Yeah, where mind control takes place through a little crystal rose. Uh, we've never seen that before. <laughs> So welcome. This is episode seventy-five. We are going to be talking about modern undead. You've heard myself. I'm Daniel, and you heard Shana, and uh, you also heard uh, Phil Sandifer is joining us today. Hello. I would uh, feel really. Uh, I would be really confused if anyone listened to this podcast regularly and didn't know who Phil Sandifer is. But uh, he is the uh, the author of uh, the Tardis Auditorium blog, uh, currently in Auditorium Press. Many books about Doctor Who and science fiction. Um, one of the most uh, influential. Uh, writers uh, on the uh, topic of Doctor Who and leftist thought, and um, our personal Apparently second, totally wrong about and and our second favorite uh, Marxist Doctor Who critic. So uh, wow, welcome, Phil. Hi. <laughs> um, and at least one of us is wrong about Moffat. So uh, I think we'll get into that. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Phil, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Uh, New uh, you're treating you so well so far? Yeah, nothing's gone wrong yet. So you know. Well, well, we do have a, over in Oregon, I, I found out this morning on Twitter, there's a, uh, a bunch of right-wing ideologues who are uh, deciding to uh, take over a uh, wildlife refuge because they didn't want to pay taxes and um, such. No, no, no. It's not, that they, it's not that they don't want to pay taxes. It's that they're mad that someone got arrested for arson. That too. Or, um, yeah, I, I read into that and just kind of went, oh, uh, is, it, is it bad that my immediate thought when reading that was just... Oh, a bunch of right wingers are mad about uh, the federal government. Um, that that's just par for the course these days, isn't it? I mean, I, it's 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 almost like a. Uh, I, I almost yawned when I read it. Um, but yeah, so I just saw that there were more shootings, and I decided I didn't want to read about it yet today. Has there actually been shootings, or are there just guns and a lot of angry right wing people? As of about three p.m. on Sunday, no one's been. Uh shot yet, but it's one of those situations where that statement could prove uh, tragically naive by the time this goes up. It's entirely possible. No, it's a, it's a bunch of um, it's a bunch of guys who, uh, basically the Bundy clan, the Clive and Bundy's sons, have decided to uh, take over a wildlife refuge because uh, some buddies of theirs went to jail for arson. So, um, woohoo. And they're complaining that the, uh, the National Park Service is an oppressive yoke of the uh, the the federal government. Uh, anyway, um, I just thought I'd put put the uh, conversation we're about to have into context there. Um, Little perspective on the world today, <laughs> right? 
So let's get started here. Let's just dive into uh, some stuff. Phil, uh, you have a new book out as of, uh, I think, about 10 days ago or so. Yeah, um, I decided that uh, Boxing Day was a good day to release a book. That that would do good things for my sales. That was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, guided by the Beauty of Their Weapons. Um, this is uh, essentially a book I've, I've read through uh, big chunks of it, part of part of it on your blog and part of it just through the, uh, the copy I have. And... Um, uh, largely a book about basically the way that right-wing ideologues have tried to take over science fiction uh, in the last year, and uh, in particular, um, Vox Day's uh, Rabid Puppies uh, group. Uh, yeah, tell- that, that's where it starts, at least. I, I try to move on to other things. Yeah. Like that, tell, but... tell me, Phil, what made you decide to plumb the depths of the depravity of Vox Day? Anger? Anger's a good reason, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the the long and short of it is just, you know, the Hugo's controversy was uh, ongoing. This uh, fascist dickbag had uh, hijacked the process and basically handpicked the nominees by dint of having a couple hundred people who would pay the uh, $40 to be eligible Hugo uh, nominators and do whatever the hell he told them. Uh, and I was pissed off about it, so I decided to, as I usually do when I'm pissed off about something, complain on the internet at length. Oh. Yeah, good. I, the, the poetry world had its own version of this, like, 10 or 15 years ago. Oh? So I, I am familiar <laughs> with this kind of struggle. What, what happened in poetry? I've not heard about that one. Oh, God. I don't even remember who was involved, but there was a a big scandal that I think got unearthed online that was just talking about the percentage of past students who just coincidentally won blind judged contests that happened to have their past teachers judging them. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that misses the, uh, you know, key uh, infuriating thing about the Hugos for me, which is that it's not just, you know, this, uh, rules abusing takeover of the awards process uh but one specifically for uh white nationalist propaganda reasons right right yeah no and i mean like this situation came down to uh a personal relationship um (laughs) or a few personal relationships that perhaps went beyond just teacher student the nepotism that exists in award shows and award giving in general uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a degree to which it's irreducible from, I mean, it shouldn't be quite as irreducible in a, in theory, blind competition like what you're des- describing. I mean, the Hugo Awards are a, are a fan award at the end of the day. The idea is, you know, anyone who's uh, invested in science fiction can pay uh, 40 or 50 or 60, it, it seems to change year to year, to be a supporting member of the uh, Worldcon uh, of that year's Worldcon and then participate in the Hugo nomination and voting process. Um, and so there's not the same amount of anonymity. And, you know, actually, you know, Vox, uh, Vox Day claims a lot of, of what you're uh, describing with the po- uh, poetry stuff has been secretly going on behind the scenes in the Hugos for years. He never produces a damn shred of evidence for it because he's, you know, a lying sack of shit. Uh, but that's at least what he claims. Um, and, you know. Okay, you pause because I am not this literate in geek communities as I should be. Oh, no problem. There is somebody who walks around calling themselves Vox Day? Yes. <laughs> oh, my yes. God. It is the pen name of uh, a guy named Theodore Beale, whose father is a uh, jailed tax protester and who mysteriously lives in Europe now, as though, you know, his, his money isn't entirely legal in the country it started in. 
And I believe who, he's in Italy now. Is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, he, he's a Fox Day, and that's not like ironic. That's no, no. He, his his pen name is actually Vox Day. He was writing for WorldNet Daily back in the late 90s, early 2000s, which oh, is when oh, I first... Italy. He got kicked out of the WorldNet Daily for being too extreme for them, <laughs> which should tell you all you need to know about the political ideology of Vox Day, except he is uh, someone who is uh, actively advocated for uh, acid attacks um, against women to uh, re- basically, as it's scientifically justified, to uh, restrict women by uh, throwing acid in their faces. Well, I mean, but th- this is actually, you know, the characteristic thing about Vox Day, because he does a really careful job of never actually quite advocating the, that you should do it. He just says the Taliban was rational to do it. Right. Oh, right. my God. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, you know, he's exactly that sort of troll. Well, if you're hanging out with those guys, no wonder you think Moffat is a feminist. Well, I'm not hanging out with them so much as I'm writing books about why they're terrible. Same difference. <laughs> Oh, Shana, I love you so much. Um, so yeah, uh, the book I, I really admired. Um, a lot of the, I mean, just just taking down Vox. I one of my favorite uh, bits was the uh, interview you did on Peck's Lives uh, with him. Uh, the kind of back and forth talking about the Wasp Factory and uh, what was the other book? The, uh, uh, one bright star to guide them. One bright star to guide them. Uh, that was an episode, the only episode of Peck's Lives that I haven't listened to, uh, mainly because I couldn't imagine listening to Vox Day's voice for two hours. It was just it it, it just kept uh, uh, preventing me from even hitting play on the damn thing. Um, so yeah. I, 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 I do admire uh, your fortitude on that. There was definitely a moment where that Skype call came in where I was just like, why am I doing this to myself? Click accept. Right. <laughs> um, there was a similar uh, conversation I saw where a, uh, a, uh, a women's uh, activist, a women's rights activist, actually uh, interviewed Rush V for like two hours. God. And uh, I just, I, I, again, I watched about uh, 30 seconds of it and just, I can't listen to this guy for this long. It's just, it's not something I can do. I can read his, I can read him and because I can kind of read and then turn away. But I simply can't have his voice in my ears that long. It'll just my my head will just explode. So, uh, again, nicely done. Good good job taking advantage of your white male privilege and using it for for. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's got to be good for something. I hope. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I'm like smirking while I say that. <laughs> Sometimes I think like. You know how in text you can put, like, the asterisk is doing this, asterisk? I think, like, I need some kind of, like, quote falling up me that says, I say smirkingly, or whatever. Smirkingly, I've made an adjective. Oh, they're easy enough to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to uh, stay out of this conversation just because I'm now sitting on a podcast with two people who have advanced degrees in uh, literature or media studies. Or uh, what did you? Uh, what is your PhD in, Phil? Uh, nominally English, but I focused pretty much entirely on film and media studies. With okay. Um, Shanna has a Shanna has an MFA in uh, creative writing with a focus in poetry. So I'm just the guy who studied chemistry and can and has watched every Doctor Who episode. So that's all I bring to this table. I just like that you say that your PhD was nominally in English because, like, yeah, I I think I might have taken no no I don't think in my actual PhD program I took a single like traditional read literature books class. <laughs> oh, the- 
Okay, I'm not going to just criticize higher education and English PhDs right now because that would be horrible. Because I, I think oh, I no, think you absolutely ahead. should, Shane. I, I this I, is I, this is where we're so doing this eruditorium press style, which is to go completely off topic in the first thirty seconds. So oh, okay, so we can talk about like no offense, but kind of how the title of PhD is becoming meaningless, but. It does mean you read a lot of stuff and probably have written some good stuff, too. It means you've read a lot of good stuff. I, my recollection from my PhD program was that not a lot of people were writing very good stuff. Exactly. Or, you know, the fact that somebody who is a reasonable human being is getting and a degree... We know nothing in, about this. Yeah, is getting a degree in English... Um, but can't use the supposed critical thinking skills that they're supposed to have by getting a degree in English to um, to understand, like, what GMOs are or that, like, the anti-vaccine movement was a piece of bullshit. You know, it's it, it makes you it changes your perspective of what comes with that title. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is the willful insularity of academic publishing, the degree yeah. to which. Um, especially because, you know, you have academic journals that are basically selling entirely to academic libraries. Right. Um, in this, you know, closed loop that really discourages writing about anything that anyone gives a shit about, frankly. Right. Um, so it becomes, you know, much easier to write dissertations or in general work in as narrow a field as possible where no one is going to object to what you do. Because if you were writing in, you know, a field anyone cared about, you wouldn't be publishing in an ac academic journal. You'd be publishing somewhere that, you know, paid you. Yeah. And I mean, I know with creative writing, there is this huge divide, as it were, because there's this idea that there is literary writing and non-literary writing, um, artistic writing or not artistic writing, you know, and um, genre writing is just not included. Right. Um, e even as more and more, you know, nominally literary writers include genre tropes in their stuff left, right and center. Right, but then we have to call it something different. Like, right? How, how dare we acknowledge that the uh, the buried gi giant is flagrantly a fantasy novel? Yeah, or you know, we call things magical realism if they're fantasy, or <laughs> we call them. What's uh, that quote by Harlan Ellison? You know, what are they? What's magical realism? It's what you call fantasy when you write it in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, even Harlan Ellison is right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, um, so, like, having put that all in context, uh, yeah, it it will be interesting. So, this this is my my base level thing. You have a background in English, yeah, at least some feminist theory. I'm assuming, uh, yeah, pretty good grounding in it. And you think Moffat is a feminist? Indeed. So, give me since <laughs> I did not read anything I was supposed to give me like the two second, um. Let, let, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, I was I, I was going to talk a little bit more about gathered by the beauty of their weapons. I, I'm all for promoting my work instead of getting into a fight over Moffat feminism. To be I, clear, I, let's let's do the Moffat and feminism. <laughs> let's do a few minutes on that, and then I'll come back. All right, to hey, by all the right. Beauty. How does that sound? about your book, sir. 
I'm not, well, which one are we doing? Which host do I listen to? Good God! Uh, you should absolutely, when we're talking about feminism, you should listen to the woman in the room. That's that's the uh, that's the that's the always the answer I'm going to give. I'm sorry. Okay, Wait. so we said we were going to have you on the show, and the first thing Jack says to me is like, "Feminism." <laughs> like Shana, you better watch out with Phil. And like Daniel's like, uh, uh, "Feminism," and I'm like, "So." This is not your fault, though. Like, I completely <laughs> believe you have a really good argument for it. I have just been, like, been, like, everyone's been circling, like, fucking vultures waiting for me to be on the attack. So I'm like, all right. I mean, I, I suppose my argument is, on the whole, more an op, more an, a frustrated opposition to a particular school of and style of Moffat criticism that I think is borderline televisually illiterate. You know, it, it's a frustration at a wealth of um, arguments about Moffat's alleged misogyny that are based on a fundamental, complete inability to read television that routinely asserts things that didn't fucking happen. Um, and so to some extent, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, shout down your hypothetical critique of Moffat's feminism without hearing it. That seems like it would be awful of me, uh, frankly. But broadly speaking, my, you know, sort of feminist defense of Moffat, first of all, is positioned in terms of, of the history of the show. is positioned in the fact that I think Moffat inherited badly damaged goods when it comes to feminism. That even under Davies, Doctor Who was a show that didn't give too many shits about women. Davies improved it in some key ways, but there were still, I think, some very large problems. Um, and I think everything that Moffat um, has done with the show, kind of, uh, you know, in terms of feminism, for me, I do take it in the context of just how much, um, how, how much of what he's doing is being done for the first time, is being done in a way that is has to be taken in the context of a show where, let's be honest, the role of women has never been its strong suit. Um, at any point in its history. But for me, I think he's developed um, characters that are nuanced, you know, female characters that are nuanced and details in, detailed in ways that they haven't been under previous uh, eras. He's been very interested in critiquing white man saves the day stories, even as Doctor Who is, you know, structurally stuck in them as long as he keeps hiring a white man in the lead role, which I do, I mean, I have trouble wishing to give up Peter Capaldi's doctor because he's been one of my favorite things. But I do yeah. you know, strongly wish that we had a female doctor in there by now. Um, but at least within the context of still being a show about a white British man who travels around the universe and fixes other people's problems, uh, which is already, you know, a, a set of problems for the show, I think that Moffat has gone further than really anyone in critiquing the, you know, white man fixes problems in valuing the female counter narratives uh, that the story lets you put in and in pushing the show to be a lot more nuanced and critical on the subject of primarily gender. I think uh, really if I were wanted to make a progressive critique of Moffat, especially compared to Davies, I'd complain that I don't think Moffat is anywhere near as good as on race these days. And that's something right. from the guy who oversaw the beginning of the Shakespeare Code. Okay, so I, I kind of get what you're saying now if you're talking about in terms of, like, historical placement of writing and... Right. Which like, we we definitely disagree on some details, but the, the big picture, I think you and I are still relatively on the same page. 
Yeah, I mean, and and I guess the other perspective I, and this is where I, I really do tend to get frustrated at a school of anti-Moffat criticism is I tend to, and, and, and I was quibbling a bit with uh, Daniel on the blog about this as he, you know, uh, posted part one of why the Moffat era is uh, insufficiently feminist. Was that your, your choice of phrases, Daniel? Uh, something similar to that. I, I don't remember the exact word, but... Right, yeah, and, and just... I... I, I'm kind of, uh, and this is something I, I dealt with in, uh, deal with a fair amount in my, uh, book on Wonder Woman, just to, you know, plug my own work a little more, suggesting that I think that feminism is not something that's necessarily best treated in terms of ideal forms, and it is instead a messy, sclerotic, two steps forward, one step back, um, practical process, that feminism is something that happens in the real world. And I've, you know, watched in Doctor Who fandom as, and this was a hugely visible transition, at least in American Doctor Who fandom, that happened really over the course of the Davies to Moffat handover, where suddenly um, conventions started being swamped by um, genderqueer cosplayers who were uh, playing, you know, female uh, iterations of all the past Doctors. Um, I went to the New York uh, premiere of Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon, and the line was fucking crammed with people cosplaying Amy and River. I mean, these characters were speaking to an audience that Doctor Who had never spoken to before, mm-hmm. um, at least in the U.S., and that carries a lot of weight for me and you know i don't isn't wanna... that and not to not to interrupt there phil but isn't that also the the era we didn't discover it until a few years after that so i can't i wasn't there in that moment wasn't that also kind of the historical moment where bbc america really picked it up and sort of promoting it yeah, though? BBC, bbc america did pick it up from um from the sci-fi, sci-fi channel I, there was a new doctor there was a promotional push there but i mean was... i wonder if it's it's suddenly being promoted to a new audience more so than well, yeah, you know, but because... I, I, I think if you saw that same phenomenon happening in Britain, where the show was already huge, but I mean, I, I would, I would buy that a lot more. I, I even remember, you know, just last year seeing the, um, you know, clips from that Doctor Who World Tour thing they did, where they, uh, you know, took uh, Capaldi, uh, Moffat, and uh, Coleman around to um, a bunch of locations in, you know, Brazil, Australia. Uh, jumping around. And every shot of that, every audience was this overwhelmingly, you know, at least 50% female um, audience in there. And that's not something you can say about Doctor Who historically. You can say it to an extent with the Davies era. You know, I I don't want to dismiss the the, uh, progress Davies made uh, breaking out and, you know, breaking out in that audience. But you know, you see tons and tons of people co- um, cosplaying with and identifying with Moffat's characters. I don't even want to take away from the people who, who you know, don't make that identification, who think those characters are problematic and troubled and want to critique them. I, I, I don't want to um, diminish that. But I think that there is a tendency in this very totalizing critique of um, Moffat as, you know, at as sexist, as that's, you know, sort of your top-line starting description of Moffat, as it is for a lot of critics. I think that that ends up being dangerously erasive of the real progress that's being made, the -the on-the-ground result of real women who who are clearly finding these stories are saying things they hadn't found in previous stories. I think that counts for that. I understand, like, I mean, I think a large part of what you're saying here is representation matters, and I completely agree with that. And I think 
that part of the genderqueer cosplay has to do as much with the um, acceptance of queering characters in general, um, which has been more of a thing within the past decade. The kind of rise of cosplay culture, the kind of... A, a lot of that goes together. Um, I, think... I think my only concern in what you say, and, and this is just because I know, like, specifically people have asked us to say like hey set them off on each other like my real real critical disagreement with you would only be i think my biggest issue is that doctor who as it's currently being written isn't per se anti-feminist or sexist however stephen moffat and when i and when i say this i tried to really point to stephen moffat through his interviews through the way that he talks about the show he really does sound sexist um he does not sound like a feminist gen you know, genuinely out of curiosity how familiar are you with his back catalog of work uh, we're not at all <laughs> okay so here here's 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 the counter argument I, I i would make and it's it's one that's based on um to to a real extent on his past work. the second show he ever did was a sitcom called joking apart which is about his divorce, to the extent of the main character is flagrantly a stand-in for Stephen Moffat. Uh -huh. And it is savagely critical of the main character, specifically for being a wisecracking jerk, frankly, who doesn't take things seriously when he should, who always falls back on the often self-deprecating, but still look-at-me-aren't-I-so-clever quip, and who completely fucks up his marriage marriage with it by being fundamentally incapable of listening to the women in his life um, because he always has fallen back on this sort of snarky cleverness. And that's a huge theme that for, that to me is really stayed in, Mo in Moffat's work. Moffat is a straight bloke who knows full well that he is often too clever and too sarcastic for his own good. That does come out in interviews. He does go for the stupid joke in interviews when it's probably not as advisable as it should be, um, where he probably should, should by this point be capable of going, oh, for fuck's sake, this is going to, I'm going to get you know, crucified for this by people who, um, you know, miss the self-deprecating uh, joke aspect of it. Um, and he does, and he should probably have learned better by now. But he's, throughout his career, for decades and decades, been brutally critiquing the very um, straight male privilege he, he performs in interviews. And from everything I've heard, he is a desperately shy, awkward man who puts on a kind of extrovert drag to do introverts, if you will. Uh, introverts, to do interviews, if you will. And yeah, has, has some problems that can arise when the uh, jokey, awkward tone gets either filtered out by poor quoting or, you know, doesn't get uh, come out as much in text. He, he I think, like you, needs a uh, he says smirkily uh, tag on a lot of what he says. Yeah, uh, but I just think yeah. he described somebody, uh, a middle-aged man with nice guy syndrome. Um <sighs> Except that I don't see any of the entitlement that I see in, in Nice Girl Syndrome. I mean, I don't see anywhere in Moffat, uh, Moffat's work the suggestion that people like him uh, deserve much of anything other than being put in their place by the women that they otherwise walk, walk all over. I mean, I think you see that in 
River Song's plot and Clara's plot in The Abominable Bride. I mean, over and over again, he's putting the nice guy syn syndrome man in his place and saying, yeah, you're kind of a dick, dude. I, uh... I think we can leave it at that. I'll stew on that and think about it, and maybe I'll write a blog post in response. I, I look forward to reading it. But yeah, um, I understand your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I think that, you know, for me, the biggest complaint you can, I think, really, um, that's really on target with Moffat and Doctor Who is it would be nice if someone who, I mean, who weren't committedly a straight, straight white guy in the way that Stephen Moffat is were writing. I would love it if we had a showrunner perspective that wasn't another um, straight white guy. Given that it is a show written by a straight white guy about white men fixing the world, I think it's about as autocritical as that's going to get. Certainly, I think, and this is, I guess, where I, part of why I get a little bit prickly on sexist being you know, sort of one of the first uh, descriptors that comes up with Moffat is... I have trouble looking at a lot of other straight white, you know, straight white guy emanating culture and seeing it as doing even half as well as Doctor Who, let alone better. I, I, I don't see why Moffat is of the, uh, straight white men in writing geek culture, the one who most has sexist, um, attached to him as one of the, you know, descriptors that comes up first, except in as much as I think he's brave enough to actually poke the issues and hold himself up for critique in a way that makes it a little more visible and uncomfortable. We agree on uncomfortable. I mean, I think it's often deliberately uncomfortable. I think a lot of the time, you know, when uh, problematic stuff is happening in, in uh, Moffat's work, it's because a character is behaving problematically and the audience is supposed to go, ooh, you're not doing good right now, dude. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with you that I think Moffat thinks that what's he's that is what he's doing. But and maybe, you know, that that really is just the issue. It's not that he is overtly sexist, um but as a middle-aged straight white guy, he is very clearly been affected by toxic masculinity and sexist views of women and he wants to talk about it. But maybe it's uh a little bit above his head or outside of his experience and trying to write about it is better than not so yeah like i said i'm gonna have to think on that for a while but so, just so that i don't make daniel incredibly angry uh i think moving back to daniel <laughs> and letting us direct us out of this conversation um, I actually wanted to to just uh, make a a quick statement real quick. I've been yeah. really enjoying listening to you guys talk about it. Um, but you know, my my general feeling on Moffat is um that he is uh, an astoundingly superficial writer on a lot of these issues. Um, at least in terms of I, I know Phil, you have a lot of uh, commentary about the meta narrative um that Moffat does and the in the way that he uses um you know uh, tone switching and that sort of thing, and um. I don't even disagree with that, but I, I find his work um, in terms of these issues to be really uh, kind of one note. He doesn't uh, approach these things from a very systematic and uh, and heartfelt way, at least from from my vision. He tends to, you know, like taking uh, Amy and Rory, for instance, you know, flipping the kind of like, well, who's in charge of the relationship switch and saying, well, Amy's the brash one and, and Rory is kind of the nebbish, uh, quiet one. 
feels like it's, I mean, it's fine as far as it goes, but then it doesn't go any deeper than that. I, I feel like he's a, he's a superficial writer, and I feel like he is embedded into his own culture and doesn't challenge the assumptions of his culture. And I feel oh. like that that's, that, you know, to me, that's kind of the baseline thing is like, it's, and I do think that there is a discontinuity between the Matt Smith era and the Capaldi era. I think yeah. the Capaldi era has been better than the yeah. Matt Smith era. And in particular, I think series six and seven were just almost atrociously bad. Um, um, and, I, and that I, being I when I discovered the show is also like affects that I, the way I view it in some ways. Yeah, I, I, I do think the biggest um, tragedy of Moffat's era in terms of writing quality is he was so far behind by the end of season six that Let's Kill Hitler and The Wedding of River Song were literally shot as first drafts. Those scripts basically haven't been revised since the first draft, and it shows in some painful ways here and there. He, he is... You know, and, and that's an awful, that, that's a hell of a bad day to have a bad day, if you will. Those, those are two stories that are really, you know, handling some incredibly heavy stuff. I mean, Let's Kill Hitler, uh, positioned after um, A Good Man Goes to War the way it is, is trying to be, I think, this story about, you know, healing from trauma and uh, survivorship. And that's not a story you want to be shooting your first draft on. Those are not themes for a first draft. And I guess um, that's what I find so offensive um, in a lot of ways. As I mean, a I don't, uh, yeah. And, and I guess, you know, my, my perspective is I don't think Moffat got um, as late as he has ever been in his career on scripts specifically because he didn't care about those issues. I think he just got fucking swamped that year. Um, and, it, and, and it ended up with some of the biggest, you know, weightiest thematic work he's done um, getting resolved with half-baked scripts that require quite a bit of sort of poking at and going, okay, what were you trying to do here as we, you know, inferring what he was trying to do from scripts that work a lot better than those two. I mean, and again, I think that this is a situation where I feel like you're, you are being generous with Stephen Moffat because of your, your considering of his life situation um, in ways that I, I'm just like, okay, well, I watched this episode and here's what I thought. Sure. I mean, um, there's certainly a degree to which the fact that I am the sort of lunatic who has written a million words on Doctor Who and, you know, casually knows the production history of almost every season of it is tragically infringing on my uh, reading of it in ways that are not necessarily good. I mean, I don't want to, you know, privilege being a complete fucking psychopath about uh, Doctor <laughs> Who knowledge. <laughs> Um, I think this is a good place to, to leave this discussion for now. I do want to uh, finish up that series I was writing, and I hope you'll uh, read and respond a bit, Phil. And, oh, sure. Uh, I, hope that, I hope that if you, if you do decide to come back, we can uh, maybe uh, bring these issues back up again. Um, I, I, think I, would, I think we'd all enjoy that, at least to some degree. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back to Guided by the Beauty of Their Weapons uh, just briefly, because I, I did want to um, talk a little bit about um, science fiction and ideology and kind of politics, because we often get described or, or have been described before as kind of uncomfortably political for a lot of people. Um, in the sense that, like, when we talk about K-9, we talk about him as a, as a slave, you know, for instance, which is exactly what K-9 is. Um, right, I, think, I mean, I think, obviously, uh, the term press, you know, I launched it on the uh, explicit tagline of it being a site for uh, leftist geek media uh, criticism. So obviously, you know, the politics and science fiction are uh, an approach I'm really invested in, hence writing the book and all. 
Yeah, uh, one of the issues that I found uh, really, one of the things that I find really interesting, and, and this isn't even necessarily covered in the book per se, but I, I wondered if you could speak on it, is the, the idea that like uh, people like the uh, rabbit puppies and the sad puppies claim to just want not apolitical science fiction. Which, I mean, oh, which we can talk nonsense. about, like, there's no such thing as an apolitical text, sure. But then when they point out the examples of the things they like, they're, they aren't explicitly political. It's just explicitly political in ways that they like. Um, yeah, you know, the, the idea that um, you're simultaneously, you know, decrying the politicization of the Hugos while in, um, I think the most jarringly bad nomination the uh, Rabbit Puppies did was in the best related work category. They nominated a book called Wisdom from My Internet by, I want to say Mike Williamson, but I might be uh, getting getting the name wrong on the writer there. That's basically a guy's collection of Facebook memes, conservative Facebook memes that have nothing whatsoever even to do with science fiction. Um, and, you know, this is on their ballot. So anyone, you know, who's nominating that and then professing to be invested in uh, depoliticizing the awards is a flaming hypocrite, um, you know, first of all. Yeah, Michael Z. Uh, Williamson, I'm I'm fairly familiar with, at least I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but he's he's a, a kind of explicitly right wing libertarian kind of guy um, who who writes things about how the. Uh, <laughs> uh, the federal park system will uh, lead to the totalitarian yoke of Soviet communism, um, essentially. I don't think he wrote that into a book, but I think he would largely agree with that perspective. Right, yeah. So um, my favorite example is, uh, you know, a guy like um, John Ringo, for instance, who is, uh, I mean, just explicitly conservative Republican American writer who writes these uh, very overtly conservative right wing um <laughs> You know, the Republicans should be in charge kind of novels and people read them and say, I like it because he's not, you know, he doesn't he doesn't bring politics into it. It's just guns and explosions. And it's like, no, he's making explicit political points. And I, I do find that that dichotomy fascinating that. that but you know, I mean, even on a more basic level, that entire, you know, guns and explosions aesthetic, because that, that's you know a big part of it. Nominally, the. Uh, the, the way the apolitical critique works, you know, if, if I'm trying to present it um, straight-facedly and as sympathetically as I can, is, you know, this idea that, um, well, you know, to sort of take it back to um, Shannon's point, uh, or points earlier, this sort of literary style of fiction um, has taken over from a more unreconstructed sense of pulp, of pulp adventure. That's, you know, the politicization of, of science fiction has come with this turn uh, toward the literary, which is to say, you know, influences of modernism. I mean, we're fighting, you know, the battles of the uh, new wave of science fiction in the 60s and 70s all over again with that critique. But for me, the important point is that pulp adventure has never been an apolitical genre. That's always been a genre and, a stru and structure about uh, valorizing uh, the colonial adventure. I mean, those stories, whether they be, uh, you know, Conan, whether they be uh, John Carter of Mars, wh whether they be Tarzan, they're all about this imperialist vision and the sort of rugged individualist hero who is going to be the person we need on these uh, unexplored frontiers. And I think that there's a lot of reasons that, you know, unreconstructed pulp adventure doesn't really carry the day uh, anymore. It's repetitive and boring, as anyone who's actually tried to read, you know, uh, John Carter of Mars will tell you. 
I, I don't want to uh, deny the influence and importance of Edgar Rice Burroughs, but there can't be more than a handful of people who, you know, are actually reading deep into the Tar Tarzan series anymore. I mean, um, oh, I always like to point out Moby Dick because Moby Dick for half of the book is making fun of those adventure novels. And the other half of the book is like existential crises. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There is a way to engage popular culture with a very philosophical viewpoint. Um, and there is a way to engage popular culture and just say, hey, I'm going to tell the same story as everybody else. Right. But I mean, I, I, and certainly there's a ton of pulp influence on a lot of, you know, popular, uh, of popular science fiction. I mean, I don't think anyone seriously thinks that uh, The Force Awakens isn't going to win the Hugo this year at this point. Uh, which I think is a shit choice, but that's neither here nor there. You know, obviously this sort of pulp, uh, pulpy adventure is still having a lot of influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just not a lot of people who I think actually want to go back to, you know, Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar as their, you know, model for science fiction and fantasy. Right. One of the issues that we run into with talking about these things is I think there is a difference between like overtly political fiction and then overtly partisan fiction. Whereas I, I don't think like, I would not want to sit down and read a book that said you should vote for Bernie Sanders because, um, you know, like something that's explicitly, you know, about a political candidate or that is uh, very kind of straightforwardly and um, simplistically pointing away towards a particular like issue. As opposed right, to something which portrays a the, complex world, which... Uh, the equation of the political with the stuff that goes on in the politics section of a newspaper is already a right-wing favoring equation. Yes, because, I mean, every, every day is political. We live our lives political. You cannot escape the political. The personal is political, as someone clever once said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> um, I would, uh, you know... I, to me, one of my favorite, you know, kind of, again, Bon Mott's about that is that if you're if you're not challenging or at least questioning the status quo, then you are ultimately supporting the status quo. And I think that that's really yeah. kind of what these guys want. They, they don't want people of color and queer people and, and trans people and, and marginalized people to be involved in their um, white boy club because the uh, th they're fine with it being the white boy club. If, if the white boy club is a challenge, then they get to uh, kind of do whatever they want. And, um, I mean, it's the I, I think, way to go. I, I think it's in some ways um, not quite as much about not wanting, you know, women and people of color as not wanting their perspectives. They're allowed in, but only if they assimilate completely to uh, the white culture norm. I made that well, a little I, bit too simplistic, well, but I, I, well, I, I, I agree with that point. I'll take that criticism. I think that's, I think that's important with um, someone like Vox Day in particular, who, you know, based on um, DNA tests that he refuses to actually, you know, discuss the uh, degree, claims uh, Native American and Mexican uh, ancestry, and then plays that as a, you know, shamelessly plays that as a get-out-of-jail-free card anytime any discussion of race uh, of racism comes up you know it's how he always goes with ah i'm not a white supremacist because um and, and so this i mean i think it's important to almost you know I, you can't decouple um it completely from the uh genetic and you know physical aspects of race and gender but there's a degree to which um you know on a very 
deep and systemic level, part of the goal here is to try to um, eliminate the idea that race and gender have anything more than their superficial characteristics. That, you know, the suggestion that diversity is purely a matter of quota checking. Yeah. Right. Um, Go ahead, Shannon. You know, and I, I think, you know, as a queer identifying person, a lot of it is is talking about reasserting that binary and heteronormative structures of being able to say, like, you are good or bad, you are male or female, you are this or that, we fit together this way or that way. It's a very and or policy. Um, and, and that, you know, goes down to to every way we view things and is internalized so that I may feel being a girl means I need to be a certain way. Um, but there is an acceptable way to be a girl and there is an unacceptable way to be a girl, but you can't detach that from history and how those things have gotten meaning and why we have put value um, in them. And apparently I really need to pay attention to this Fox day person. No, don't. Yeah. You don't, unless you just, you know, have been going, there's just not enough people making me mad on the internet. I need to add a few. Oh, no. Everybody makes me mad. Vox, okay. Vox, Day, Vox Day might be the, like, the, the, uh, one of the bottom five people on the internet, period. Okay. I mean, you know, he, he is pretty, pretty awful. Um, but I mean, like it, it's it's you. Got, I mean, were it not were it not for the men's rights activists, the explicit men's rights, which activists, he is one of, so, he, he yeah. is. But he is like uh, I would say, Roosh is worse than Vox Day at this point, just because Roosh has a bigger audience. I, I well, think, well, but, well. like ultimately, as someone who on the spectrum of living is kind of almost on the complete different side. I'm not a person of color, but. There is this, it's it's really easy. It's really easy to be somebody who can pass as a white man and ignore a lot of these things. But if you are somebody who is so far on the other end of the spectrum to hear you say, well, it's better than it was, or he's, he's the worst, it almost feels irrelevant to the argument of just saying, okay, well, clearly we're we're working on a fucked up system. And so it's t more about system, like systematically changing how we think about this. When something is systemic, it does involve the way people of color talk about people of color. I think, I think what you're getting at is it's sort of like the uh, Donald Trump doesn't bother me as much as all the people who are going to vote for Donald Trump bother me. Yes. Sort of question. Yes. I, I guess. Yeah. And, and this is part of why I'm, you know, what, what I'm fascinated by with Vox Day and why I do spend, you know, so many more pages on him than anything about his, you know, the quality of his intelligence or writing comes close to deserving, uh, is I think it's important to accurately understand and, uh, understand the mentality and logic of yes. the, of, of, of the rising alt-right, you know, and, and that's part of what's so loathsome about Vox Day isn't even, you know, his views in any one sphere as the f fact that he's got his fingers in Gamergate, in MRAs, in, you know, trolling the Hugo Awards, in anti-immigration politics. I mean, he, he just manages to find any, any way in which it is possible to be a shitty, shitty human being. You can basically rest assured Vox Day is that. Um, and, and it's the sort of sheer 
scope of his awfulness that makes him a kind of weirdly fascinating figure for me because he just is the alt-right mindset at its most pathological. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I, again, I've been following him for about 15 years, and I was particularly, I, I haven't paid much attention to him lately. I was more involved in him when uh, the new atheism stuff was happening in the uh, kind of the mid-2000s when he was uh, talking a lot about uh, basically how uh, Dawkins and Hitchens were like the worst people in the world, which in some ways they, they are not very good people, and that kind of came out a few years later. But, uh, you know, at the same time, his, his arguments against them was, uh, not that they aren't feminist enough, for instance. Um, right, I mean, it's impressive to write an entire book on how awful new atheists are and manage to never be right once in it. Yeah, no. That takes talent. Yeah, it, it does, very much so. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, you are also working on a, uh, a book on the uh, neo-reactionary movement, is that right, Phil? Yeah, that, that one's a weirder, uh, a weirder book, um, in that, you know, it's at the moment just sort of a 38,000-word straight-shot essay with no chapter divisions or obvious organization. Um, so it should sell, you know, like hotcakes. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, a broader take. Uh, actually, the joke on that one is I'm refusing to mention Vox Day once in it. Uh, instead, I'm focusing very intently on uh, Mencius Moldbug, the uh, sort of, I, it's tough to call him, you know, intellectual forefather of neo-reactionaries, just because that carries so many uh, assumptions about the about you know intellectualism and neo-reactionaries. But certainly he's the writer who started it. And then uh, Nick Land, who's a uh, British philosopher, uh, hardcore like accelerationist postmodernist, who then in recent years took a weird neo-reactionary turn. And then finally, even though he's not um, strictly speaking a neo-reactionary, but just because his ideas intersect with them so much, um, Eliezer Yudkowsky and the whole uh, less wrong crowd. Yeah. No, so that's, that, uh, that book's on those three. That, that sounds uh, like a fascinating book, and I look forward to uh, getting to read that one at some point. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to finish up the first draft in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll see what I'm doing with it release-wise. So, moving on into Modern Undead. Um, Shana, this was your first time watching this one. Um, what did you think of Modern Undead? So, mostly I thought Turlo is really gay. I got a lot of flack for arguing that once. No, I mean, like, and this is funny because, like, I remember when Daniel was watching through the entire series and I had not seen a single episode with Turlo. I walk in the room, see him, and I'm like, oh, is he gay? And the actor I have found is not gay, but um, apparently I just read him as gay no matter what. I think he's adorable. He he has this very charmy, flirty thing going on uh, with everyone, um, which is a little smarmy, um, but he doesn't seem to like girls. So, yeah. But the story, I thought, was kind of weird. Yeah, th those are my short thoughts on it. Uh, but, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I actually want to, just because, you know, the Turlo is gay thing came up, and this is, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a fair amount about that in Tardis Eruditorum, and it really was one of the more controversial points um, I've ever made. I mean, a lot of people pushed back uh, really hard on that. Um, and, you oh, know, I, I made so wrong, though. I know. I mean, I, and I made the argument, you know, pretty grounded in, um, you know, historical readings of gay culture and looking at the way in which he's, you know, really presented as a, you know, dandy slash aesthete figure. Oh yeah. Um, you know, really arguing. But what's weird to me is, you know. 
I, I agree with you, he's really flagrantly presented as gay, but it's a pretty negative stereotype, and a much more negative stereotype than you might expect from a gay writer and gay producer on this. Well, honestly, um, he made me think a lot of, uh, this is horrible, because I'm not going to remember any names. Do you watch Downton Abbey at all? I've seen a few episodes. There is a character who is very much a self-loathing, closeted gay man, and it brings out a lot of those negative stereotypes about gay men. But if you kind of read it as something of an internal struggle, I, I think it's less problematic. You, you can certainly, I'm, you know, not to give too many spoilers ahead of where this whole Black Guardian arc goes, but right? un, unsurprisingly, it eventually does end. You, you know, you can read it on the whole as a coming out of the closet arc for Tolo. Well, and not only that, I, I mean, I'm already looking at it as this story of control over oneself versus expectations. Um, just the entire way that the Black Guardian is dealt with as calm, kind of almost the symbol of masculinity kind of forming within Turlo. Uh, but he's, The symbol of masculinity should have a dead bird on its head more often. Right? Yeah, and feathers. More feathers. And uh, I love the way this is something I wasn't even going to necessarily bring up, but I, I love in episodes one and two in particular of uh, Modern Undead, how many of these sequences in which Turlo talks to the Black Guardian or talks to the uh, to the Crystal uh, look very uh, they're they're shot very much like uh, Satanic Temptation sequences. Oh, um, yeah. there, there is this kind of sense of like the devil is making me do things, and uh, you know, um, very much kind of in fitting with uh, kind of that late seventies, early eighties low budget horror aesthetic almost. I'm being tempted by the sin. Uh, I, I do think it's weird, though, that, you know, when Doctor Who is going for this um, duplicitous, untrustworthy companion idea, that's suddenly when they start, you know, deliberately making the character gay instead of whatever the hell we want to call Adric. You know, I, I I get that, but I also see this and I think of like, okay, if I was a kid watching this in the 80s when it was still not exactly great to be gay how would I be taking this? How would I be seeing the way that Turlo struggles? And I know, like, I haven't seen him be actually, like, evil. I don't know if he gets to be, if he's an actual villain. or He's going he's he's just... to end up being a kind of reluctant hero, and he, he's very ambiguous character through most of his run. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Check. Okay. But, like, for me, I see the massive effects of trying to hide secrets, you know, of trying to live a life that is not really your life. Um, so it, I, I think it could be read as duplicitous, but it can also be be read as just the effect of being constrained by your situation. Right. I mean, I certainly don't want to make the argument that, you know, it's a bad portrayal by any stretch of the imagination. I, mean, I suppose, uh, if anything, I you know, picking up on your, your uh, wonderfully understated note that the 80s were not a great time to be gay, because um, we're still heading up to, you know, when... Um, Thatcher starts trying to really impose some um, 
homophobic legislation on the country. I mean, that, that right. uh, I, I hope you, uh, you, you cover uh, the Happiness Patrol in, in the future of this uh, podcast, because there, there you really get to those issues. Um, you know, I mean, even uh, John Nathan Turner, though he is the architect of many of his misfortunes at the BBC, um, another, you know, a real problem he had was just the uh, entrenched uh, homophobia he faced as an openly gay man working at the BBC. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to some extent, I think, you know, that that's my point is that we have this serial where there's no way that Grim Wade and Nathan Turner don't know full well what they're doing. I mean, you don't, as two gay men, write this story by accident, create this story by accident. Yeah. Um, but the degree to which it is trading on... Um, negative stereotypes, the degree to which it is only when you have this sort of cowardly, duplicitous idea of a companion do you sort of open the door to the blatantly um, and deliberately coded as gay uh, character. You know, you can really see how unfortunate it was to be gay in the 80s in this story in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I would agree with that, but I would also say that, like, Tegan and Nyssa are getting a lot more fucking coupley as we get to this point. <laughs> and that, on the other hand, is almost certainly completely inappropriate. Um, yeah, so, and... That, that really great. comes out of Nathan Turner was famously paranoid after casting, you know, the young, dashing Peter Davison as the doctor, that basically there would never be shots whatsoever where Peter Davison is in physical contact with uh, the companion. So you keep getting, you know, it, it's there in every TARDIS scene, practically, where they block them with Nissa and Tegan standing on one side of the t- TARDIS and the Doctor and Turlow standing on the other. Oh, I know. Oh, oh, I immediately noticed. And that, like, tight little schoolboy uh rock and rolly kind of feeling look that Turlow has going for him and how close he is in proximity to the doctor at just like all times I noticed oh it's hard not to it's really hard not to I like I at one point turned to Daniel I was like he is so gay I am officially a Turlow fangirl yeah, this this was about three minutes after we first saw Turlo. I think this this wasn't even like uh, I, I this might have even been before the car accident in episode one, where Shanna turned to me and said, "I'm a fan of Turlo." Yeah, I I think he's great. I think the the actor brings a real funny sense of um, humor to it because he is clearly older and playing a teenaged something. Well, I think one of the one of the issues you run into with Turlow, and and this I think we'll kind of explore as we get further into Turlow's run, is you really don't get his backstory until his very last episode. And uh, since you don't know who he is, I mean, you you end up having to interpret a whole lot of his motives and his actions. And I don't think that's. I mean, obviously, you know, more subtlety and and more questioning is is something we generally want in drama. But I think that it almost feels like the actors didn't even know exactly what they were going for. Uh, through most of it. And so I, I do think you, you kind of start Modern Undead, you know, kind of in the middle of this, you, you get introduced to this character, and then suddenly it's like, well, who is this guy exactly? Like, what are what am I supposed to be feeling about him? And I, I think that that's a, a, just a production issue that, that does show up on screen. Hmm. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm half remembering here, but if I recall correctly, they originally only contracted um, him through Enlightenment through the Black Guardian trilogy, and we're going to do a, if it works out, we'll keep him on, um, on, but we can also just have him be a, you know, short-run evil companion if we want to. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, there's a lot that's up in the air throughout this. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, moving on from uh, Turlo and, and just kind of talking about the story in general, um, this is definitely a very timey-wimey story, at least what we now call a timey-wimey Really the story. first timey-wimey story. I mean, you poked at it a little bit with, um, you know, the Space Museum's first episode has its uh, famous time-wime, and then Dave the Daleks pokes out. But this is the first time you've actually got you know, we're jumping back and forth between two distinct time periods um, and events are, you know, mutually affecting one another. Yeah, it's, I mean, for some reason, it's not really timey-wimey unless it feels a little bit like an episode of Scooby-Doo to me, you know, where it's like, oh, he's running that way, but he's in the 70s, and oh, they're running that way, but they're in the 80s. Um, Which is kind of the, you know, by the end when you have the, um, farce style, keep the two brigadiers from meeting. Yes. Um, but also, um, you know, you've got that characteristic, um, the brigadier picks up the tracking device out of the, uh, transport cabinet at the end of the story, which explains why he has it, uh, two episodes earlier. You know, you, you've got that sort of looping causality aspect of, of the plotting. I mean, it, it's, Certainly Doctor Who goes much further in this direction, particularly under Moffat, but this is historically the first time it really went uh, anywhere near as far as it does in this story. You know, and really, of, it never goes that far again in the uh, classic series. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the things that I run into, and, and this is uh, kind of a bigger question. It doesn't really have necessarily to do directly with Modern Undead, but again, we, we get to go off topic because it's an Eruditorium Press uh uh, style podcast today. Um, I do, in general, think that the TARDIS works better as a narrative device. As a, the, the TARDIS takes us somewhere where we get to go, and then we enter a genre, and then we're going to have a story, rather than something that is actually used in the plot, because the TARDIS has so few rules about how it can be used. Um, if you look at like classic science fiction, if you look at um, you know, kind of Golden Age, Heinlein, and, and Asimov, and those kind of guys would kind of design time travel systems that would work in a certain way that you could then um, manipulate and kind of drive drama out of. Um, with fewer rules, it just kind of becomes, well, why can't the Doctor just go back in time 20 minutes and make this not happen this way? And I think increasingly one of the things I run into, um, one of my criticisms of Moffat, not to bring it back to that, is that he very often, it's at least in, in the Matt Smith era, uses the TARDIS as a magic button that you can then just solve the plot with. Um, in fact, in Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, he literally has a, a magic do-over button uh, at the end. Um, whereas this doesn't play that game at all. This is much more um, playing with causality and playing by its own rules. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you can, you know, as long as you invent what the rules are for the TARDIS within a given story, I tend not to uh, mind the flexibility of it. But yeah, I mean, they they go a fair, they put a fair amount of effort into um, setting up, you know, what the rules are for time travel in this story. I mean, actually, the uh, the two brigadiers touching is a blatant little cheat uh, by the end. That's the, uh, the idea that the two brigadiers touching will somehow produce the... Uh, same power as the Doctor's eight regenerations is pretty fucking strained, actually. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I do think that yeah. part four, I mean, I, I actually really like this story up to part four, and then it, it kind of, it, the plot loses me a bit, and some of the uh, some of the tightness that you kind of get narratively kind of uh, drifts off for me a little bit. And uh, probably 
most established by the fact that the uh, 1977 Brigadier spends most of two episodes just wandering in hallways, and the uh, as you mentioned, the the bit with the uh, they touch hands at the right millisecond, and suddenly the plot gets solved. Um, right. Yeah. Is, I mean, I'm not sure that the Doctor's subsequent line about how if that had happened a millisecond earlier or later, it wouldn't have worked is that doesn't improve the ending of the story. To, no, not at all. You know, really just highlight just how arbitrary your ending was. And, I mean, ultimately, I think, again, so we're, we're coming back to the issue of writing and how it's done. And the fact that, like, a lot of the issues that show up in this kind of story are not necessarily what is done, but how it is done. Um, and whether or not it really feels sold. Um, I liked a lot of the beginning just because I I was much more into this line of them all trying to figure out the puzzle of it. But once they got to the end of the puzzle of it, the actual villain scenario was less interesting. <laughs> I, I I tend I like the first three episodes of, of it a great deal. I mean, I, I really like the uh, villain whose only motivation is that he wants to die. I think that's a great idea, actually. Yeah, for I me, silly like the execution. Right. I mean, for me, it, it falls into a problem that a lot of um, Davison era stories do, which is. Um, instead of airing weekly, these ones are designed to air um, episode one on a Monday, two on a Tuesday, three on a Monday again, four on the next on a Tuesday. So they air basically two episodes in two days, then take six days off. And the effect of that is almost always in the even numbered episodes, you spend a painful amount of time re-explaining what happened in the uh, episode before it, yeah. and then sort of have your new. Se- and you can see it here. You know, the first two episodes are very much about running around on Earth and dealing with the 1977-1983 time zones, and then the, sub- the last two episodes are running around on the spaceship dealing with Madra. You know, you, you sort of keep the same premise for two episodes. Um, I don't think it... Uh, episode 2 ends up working a lot better than a Davison episode 2 usually works because the uh, timeline is just so clever for it. But episode 4 has nothing to do but re-explain what happened in episode 3 and then sort of shoehorn in a uh, unearned conclusion. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, we mentioned the uh, the villain, uh, the uh, modern and and the uh, the crew. Do we even get a name of that species or that group or anything, or is it just modern and the modernites? I guess. Uh, Wikipedia. I was just looking at it earlier. Decides to call them the mutants, I believe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, didn't John Pertwee uh, do the? Uh, we'll leave that alone. Oh, and uh, Hartnell, I had the uh, the mutants episode as well. Yes. So those were uh, species wise the Salonians and the Daleks in practice. <laughs> right. Um, let's, uh, talk about these guys a little bit. I, I found it, I, I, I found them very sympathetic, obviously. Um, yeah. and, uh, I think we're meant to, I mean, they are kind of a group of scientists. I mean, the, the idea of like, they are, uh, blinded by their own greed, their quest for knowledge or greed or whatever. They're looking for this fountain of youth that's going to keep them young. Um, is, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of a, a trope that we've seen before. Um, the idea that they are then punished for it, uh, is kind of a, a thing that we've seen before. But I do think that they're portrayed as basically sympathetic. They don't hurt many people more than they have to sort of thing. Um, what do we think about the morality of the Doctor um, having to make that choice as to whether to give up his for future regenerations for them or not? Is that something we found interesting? I, I found it interesting looking at it to contrast with, you know, time of the Doctor more contempor- uh, contemporarily, which is, you know, the other time where the Doctor nominally doesn't have any regenerations. But, um, you know, it's interesting to me 
how it's not even that the doctor's life is in danger. It's it's this idea of the doctor's status as a time lord is all that's in, in danger. That's a little weird. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, and, it's almost and, like I become mortal like you guys, like like you losers, if I if I do this for these guys. And it is sort of like, well, I don't know. I mean, you're not like obligated to do that necessarily, but uh, it, it is kind of a, a a weird. You know, it's not like oh, they're going to kill the doctor. It's just like, well, now I won't be a time lord anymore. Um, it is. I think the issue we're having is like tonally, it feels kind of weird. Like he is so all right with saving mortal people, and this doctor has never really seem obsessed with his future lives like some doctors are um so for me it just kind of comes out of nowhere and like i'm listening to you guys discuss it i'm like i it barely registered with me because they don't talk about it enough for me to care right i mean it's ultimately only when and it doesn't help that you know it's only when missa and tegan are in danger that he um, changes his mind, and then mysteriously he can, you know, work two more people into it without needing any more regenerations or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, again, that episode four, just everything works by magic at the end, you know. Yeah. Right. The two Briggs do their superpower thing, and uh, suddenly it just works. I, I don't I don't know. Um, it's because the Brig! <laughs> because the Brig is awesome. Uh, at least he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a Cyberman in this one, so there is that uh, uh... aspect of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the brig since we're um we're kind of moving in circles again, but that's kind of what we do here. Uh, Phil, what do you think about the brig as a character in general? I'm not sure. I mean, I've read a bunch of your writing. I don't know that I've seen you kind of uh, opine about the brig, and maybe I just missed it. Um, I love Nicholas Courtney. Um, Nicholas Courtney is so charming that he makes the brig the idea of the brigadier worthwhile, basically. Because um, there's really no reason why the Doctor's military friend should work. Um, and I think it's notable that when you put, you know, Vanessa Redgrave in that role, it doesn't work. Uh, you really need Nicholas Courtney to make the whole, you know, the Doctor's military BFF idea uh, work just because he is... Vanessa is Redgrave his daughter? Yes. I would they... argue that the writing makes that not work, but continue. I, I actually, on, on one of my podcasts, um, had um, El- uh, Elliot... Uh, Chapman in, and he made the, I thought, uh, really interesting argument that uh, part of what goes wrong is that Vanessa Redgrave isn't, doesn't adapt well to the uh, slightly melodramatic style of Doctor Who. She's the only one often playing in this very naturalistic uh, style while everyone else is playing the melodrama, and it makes her character um, a little odd. And I think that actually reflects what does work about Nicholas Courtney, because he is incredibly good at every moment of just selling the idea that his character is the one sane person in a completely batshit crazy world. That's true. Um, he, he just has this uh, wonderful twinkle in his eye of recognizing that, the, that everyone around him is completely out of their fucking minds. But I love, and I mean, what I end up loving about the Brig, though, is like everyone is out of their fucking minds, and that's just kind of life. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and, 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 but it really takes, I think, uh, Nicholas Courtney's uh, phenomenal comic performance to make it work. Yeah. yeah. He's he's uh no no pun intended compared to Turlo, but he's kind of the ultimate straight man for the series. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, I mean, well, except in the Portway era, where you know Unit is the campest thing on the planet. But <laughs> right. uh, but again, you know that what works is the idea that you never quite like the uh, Nicholas Courtney plays a character who is somehow aware of just how 
ridiculous it is that there's this top secret military organization that is employing John Pertwee. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. Um. So, what do you think of uh, uh, kind of famously, and I don't know where I where this information comes from, but um, uh, I would just I found it in a bunch of different places, so I'm assuming it's correct. Uh, originally, this was supposed to be Ian in this role, right? Which it which it's obviously written for. They had the idea of bringing Ian back. Then they picked the school setting. Then um, William Russell's schedule fell through, and he uh, and they had to you know rewrite the part for initially uh, Harry Sullivan, Ian Murder. Uh, and then he didn't work either, and they finally went to Nichols Courtney. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Shanna has deep uh, antipathy for uh, Harry Sullivan as a character. Yeah, I fucking think Harry, hate him! Harry Sullivan would have been a poor choice, I think. Um, Ian would have been wonderful. Yeah, Ian would have been great. I, I have a deep loathing for Harry Sullivan. Fucking old girl. Yeah, I, I, I don't really see how the story could have worked with him. Um, it works with Nicholas, it works with Nicholas Courtney, it does not work with the Brigadier. It's next to impossible to, uh, reconcile this with, I think, the Brigadier's character before or after, really. You know, Nicholas Courtney's character in the Pertwee era is not going to retire and become a math teacher. Um, and then, you know, on every subsequent appearance of the Brigadier, uh, whether it be Big Finish or, uh, television, he's back to the military. Yeah, that stint as a maths teacher just did not work out for him. Yeah, I mean, and it's a really weird character note for uh, for him. Um, Nicholas Courtney manages to paper over the gaps just by being Nicholas Courtney. Yeah. I, I do kind of like the idea, and I, I'm going to just uh, disagree slightly with the... I, I do kind of like the idea that the Brig kind of uh, takes a few years, and after having uh, gone through all the crazy shit he went through in the unit years, and just says, you know what, I'm going to go teach, and I'm going to teach math. And I'm gonna like like he 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 took that little bit from the doctor. I, I kind of like that just on a uh, as a person who likes math and science and sort of thing. And that 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 that's what the brig took from his time with the doctor is you know what I'm gonna go give back to my community and then becomes a a military guy again. Um, I don't know. I sort of just like it, even though I, I agree it doesn't quite make sense. But I just sort of like it, which uh, I feel bad about. Hey, there's nothing wrong with just liking something, dude. Um. <laughs> We have to have critical faculty at all times in this. We are not allowed to actually have aesthetic pleasure that is not directly connected to politics, Shana. That is how this <laughs> podcast works. Uh, well, my whole thing was like, I, I would, it was enough of um, a private school that I was like, they could have had the Brig teaching history or something that makes more sense, that feels more, you know, quote, unquote, Brigadier-like or quote, Brigadier-like, unquote. But... I don't mind the idea of the Brigadier as a teacher. When you said, oh, yeah, no, it was supposed to be Ian, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that would have been, like, super cool. But, it, like, I, I take, I believed the Brigadier as a teacher. What I didn't really get was the fact that it took him so long to catch on to who the doctor was, but, um, you know, that then becomes part of the plot, so. Yeah. I mean, obviously, what this story is more famous for in terms of mucking up the continuity is uh, doing most of the uh, damage to the unit dating controversy. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> do, do, we, do we really care about the unit dating con controversy I, at all? You know, I, I love the unit dating controversy purely because there are still people who want to insist the stories took place in the 80s. I, 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 kind of, I kind of love the fact that people care enough to argue about it, but I have no interest in actually arguing about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I like it because um, I think it's uh, an interesting um, 
place to make an argument about how um, reading television works. My, you know, my usual argument is, yeah, but go ahead and watch the clause of access and try to assert with a straight face that that's the 1980s. Um, you know, that, that there's just no way to look at uh, the Pertwee era and say uh, in 2015 that this is set in the 80s because it screams 1970s too loudly for anything else to happen. Which, you know, you obviously can see why it didn't scream it that way in the 1970s when it was first airing. Uh, but there just becomes no way to sustain uh, the unit stories took place in the 1980s reading against history. It's one that was plausible at the time, but just isn't plausible because uh, time advanced. So I find that kind of interesting. I find I find the way in which the uh, unit took place in the 80s camp sort of ultimately lost the argument. A, a strange commentary on how watch on how uh, we read date cues in television. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's an issue with five minutes into the future television and, and movies in general is that, you know, when time overtakes them, then suddenly you're uh, looking back and going like, hold on, that's what they thought 2002 was supposed to look like, you know, sort of. Uh... Well, it, it, it's the difference between five minutes into the future and 10 and 10 years into the future, which is really where, you know, the unit falls down is it works if it's five minutes into the future from when it was airing. It's when they're trying to assert a full decade that it doesn't quite. Well, I mean, it's like. But I think of the set design of um in this in this episode where where the undead are the and Modron is getting to that <coughs> place. Does that have a name? Did we ever get a name for that? What are you talking uh, about? Not the ship that they're on with the with their bronzed faces, etc. Like that location. Uh no, I don't think it gets a name just beyond the ship. Yeah, it's it's like the Queen Mary. That's as far as we got on that, right? Right, right. Anyways, but what I loved about it is the design is so clearly from that time period. It's that revamped Art Deco that they thought would still be futuristic if you made it uh, metallic. So, I mean, I find some of those issues with this episode, but I can see with this episode playing with the timey-wimey and also just kind of moving forward this kind of commentary on memory and time change. I don't know. It worked for me in, in this episode. Uh, what did you think of the aesthetics, Shane? I, I've noticed that in general, the, the 80s are very aesthetically pleasing to you and Doctor Who. Uh, they're both aesthetically pleasing. And like, I, I just think they're hilarious because I am, I was, <coughs> I was born in 1984. Um, so this, these are not my favorite fashions, but I do remember them. And I think this is the first time where I am watching Doctor Who and it is starting to feel like American TV that I would have watched from that era. And that is definitely making me watch it a little bit differently. I, I think I might need to comment on that once we get a little bit more into it. But uh, it, it does feel like, oh, wow, all of a sudden the classic Who is is more relevant to my life history. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, Phil, did you watch this upon uh, when you were a kid? Um, it was one of the first Doctor Who stories I watched. Yeah, my parents had this one on a uh, VHS tape. Um, they had everything from Time Flight through this on a tape, and then my father had taped over uh, Terminus and with uh, some track and fields from the Olympics, the bastard. <laughs> yeah, so uh, while well, I, I would make a uh, commentary about wiped tapes at the BBC, but I'm just going to let that uh, let that joke slide. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, 
before we start wrapping up here, any other thoughts about Modern Our Dead from anyone? I know I've kind of uh, walked through some kind of basic topics, and I, I feel like we're we're kind of all agreeing, which is sort of the uh, death knell for a podcast. Uh, any, yeah, any, I mean, I, any thoughts you wanted to just kind of bring to us, Phil? Uh, anything that we brought up or haven't brought up that you think is interesting? Um, no, I mean, I think this one is um, a mostly underrated gem. It, it gets a bit of a, a rough ride. Um, people think it, people accuse it of being, I think, boring. Uh, mainly, it doesn't have a conventional monster, notably, uh, which always pisses off a segment of Doctor Who fandom that should be pissed off as often as possible. Um, but uh, I think it's one of the uh, smarter and most interesting pieces of, of the Davison era. I think it really um, stands up well. It still looks intelligent and creative, uh, you know, more than 30 years uh, after, which is impressive for Doctor Who and not something you can say about a lot of the Davison era, if, we, if you're being honest. Well, and a lot of what I like about it is the stuff that we would consider maybe not as good as it would be if it were produced now. A lot of it is just kind of campy and funny. And I think that Modron and all their undead and his weird brain mutant, it it doesn't stand the test of time, but it it was enter- entertaining enough that I was engaged. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it, it doesn't stand the test of time in the sense of not looking like television from 1983. Right. Um, but it does stand the test of time in looking like interesting and compelling television. And I don't think you're ever going to stand the test of time in not looking like, you know, the time you were made uh, for long. There's nothing that stands up to that one. Well, and for... it's like watching, you know, I I commonly refer to the the demon Pooh baby from the Autons episode. And who then clearly, like, I love that episode because the story and everything is still really interesting and the characters have a lot going on. But I can giggle at the fact that, man, that's what they thought that was going to look like. Or, you know, I can giggle at those things without actually losing my enjoyment of the story itself. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think this looks very 1983, though, as opposed to looking to, uh, looking tawdry or cheap, which is... Not something, you know, again, the Davison era often misses 1980, you know, misses early 80s and ends on just looking bad. Uh, this looks, just looks 1983, which is, which is a result. Yeah, no, I mean, especially when you consider the, the I mean, the tiny budgets they always had to work on. Um, it's surprising with, with how well some of this holds up. I, uh, uh, I mean, I compared it to kind of the low budget films of the early 80s, but I mean, that's actually a, a compliment in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it looks like something that even the low budget films that were made in the early 80s had a bigger budget than Doctor Who did. So uh, it, it's it's almost surprising that uh, it looks as good as it does in some ways. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's worth contrasting with um, the next story, actually, which, you know, arguably has some better looking design on on a number of things, but on the whole looks much worse as a story than yeah. um, this one I'm, does. You know, it, I'm also a sucker for, like, the British um, Academy with the grounds and... Uh, the school that they're at. I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, that's they, something that there's no decade the BBC can't do can't do a boys' school well during. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, uh, I, I do think the exterior shooting helps a lot um, in this. It, it it definitely has a uh, where where again not to not to. I mean, the next one is is a lot of like dark, dank corridors. Um, and that that often doesn't come off as well, just because it just kind of looks dark. Um, but I, I do like it. I do like whenever, uh, particularly Davison uh, gets out in the sun. It's always it's always a nice always a nice look for him. Yeah, 
Um, I do want to mention before, like, we wrap up, um, Turlo's roommate, a.k.a. first boyfriend. Ibbotson is the character's name, or Ibbotson. He takes advantage of. I thought that that was a really interesting little whiny, nerdy, cowardly companion for Turlo. Um, but, like, you still really like him. He's just kind of geeky and doesn't really know what's going on. I really liked that I wish there, story. I wish there had been room to have him on the spaceship. Right? Him wandering around just getting into stupid trouble would have brightened the last episode up. Well, and him him getting to interact with Turlo still. I really liked his interaction with Turlo. You just want Adric to come back. That that's because he would he would have just ended up being another Adric, really. You know, getting I, into trouble and, you know. I really don't care about Adric, but I I think that <laughs> I'm I'm quite into Turlo in the fact that he has this kind of devious personality but only over people that he thinks he's smarter than and he he walks into situations and is like hmm i'm not than these people i'm going to play dumb now so i like that about turlo i think he's very savvy and i'm more interested in seeing where that goes tegan um and nissa were great as always in this episode i'm i'm really becoming a big fan of of tegan's fucking no nonsense like what Okay, the doctor said to stay here, I'm leaving. And then Nissa looks after her like, oh. Yeah, Tegan is finally, season 20 is where Tegan starts to work finally, after a season where, after 19, where she really very rarely does. I I don't know how much I've seen of her because Daniel, like, handpicks episodes, but every episode I've seen of her, she goes stamping after him every time he leaves. So, like, she's only seen She's only seen Castrovalva and Earthshot film. Okay, those are probably her two best stories in that season so yeah, yeah well uh pretty much anytime she's whining about uh wanting to uh wanting to get back to her job as a flight attendant instead of uh getting to travel on the tardis i think the audience uh is not really with her on that. yeah it, it, it helps in season 20 that she's there voluntarily finally as opposed yeah. to as a mistake mm-hmm um, one more thing I uh, I wanted to bring up, and I and I uh, and then we'll kind of wrap up here, um, unless somebody else has any more thoughts. But I uh, I was I was struck by watching this again how much the Turlo backstory in terms of the way that he is described mm-hmm. by the um, headmaster and by the brigadier is uh, sort of a parallel to Susan, the way Susan is surprised, uh, described by um, Ian and Barbara in the first episode of An Unearthly Child, in the sense of being kind of. Um, Hard to deal with. Um, I mean, Turlo's a lot more, um, I guess, rambunctious and, and violent and damaging but, things. But, but boys will be boys. Well, there's definitely a gendered issue with that. And we could talk about that to some, to some, at some detail, I think. But uh, uh, did anybody else notice that? Or, or does anybody have any thoughts about the idea that Turlo is kind of a, a Susan for the 80s in a way? I definitely think that the whole idea that he's an orphan... Um, and then we immediately find out he's not an orphan, he's not from Earth, and he wants to get home. I think that kind of setting up of the anti-hero in a way is different than Susan. Uh, Susan was never an anti-hero. If she had been an anti-hero, she'd probably have been a better character, and they probably would have let her stay longer. <laughs> but um, I think that duality of being both human but not tends to make people uncomfortable and and it makes him more interesting from the get-go i do wish that 
I mean, now that I know that I don't get the story until the end of the character, I wish that that were different. It but, yeah. also doesn't really add anything to the character. It really doesn't. Um, <laughs> his backstory is crap. His his really really Trello, uh you, you he is very ill served in a lot of ways. I think Mark Strickson really does what he can. And I think that he's a good enough performer and he has enough kind of uh, energy with uh, Davison to really kind of pull it off. I, but, oh, yeah, but... he does. <laughs> but but I don't think I don't think anybody goes, who was really well written in the 80s? Turlow. Turlow was amazingly written. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the big similarity with Susan is that neither of them quite work after their first story. Oh, um, no, I mean, Turlow. say that. Turlow works. Turlow in this story. And, and he works again in Enlightenment. But that's still sort of technically the first story in a real sense, because it wraps up the whole Black Guardian arc. Um, but once you take these sort of unearthly children away from Earth and just make them, um, you know, TARDIS crew, uh, they can't really hold the liminal state that makes them interesting in the first place. Um, and, and as you lose that, you stop being able to figure out quite what to do with the character. Yeah, and I get that. And I think... I mean, my greatest problem, if I were going to say with Doctor Who in its entirety, is that it is very inconsistent with being able to see the time a a companion spends with the Doctor as a story arc. Like, that character needs to learn something. Uh, Don't don't invent that idea until uh, 2005. Right. And even then, I, I... Okay, I'm not going to start that conversation again. Uh, <laughs> another time, another time. We'll have another that conversation. Time, another time. Basically just saying we just get to see a snippet of Trillo's life and maybe it's not a very interesting one, but it's a complicated one. Yeah, it, that's. I'm not looking forward to that, but Trillo, the character, and the way that the actor interacts with the others, I think he's just adorable, so I'm down. Right, I mean, there's a degree to which, you know, and this is... It's a problem that will happen more and more for uh, John Nathan Turner is you, you do sort of look at Turlow and go, what the hell made you think you could get that to work? You know, a- after you failed on the very basic task of following Adric's death with a story that remotely responds to that in a uh, sensible way, after you serially fail to pick up plot threads from one story and deal with them in another, when you have, you know, Nissa's complete failure to react to um, the fact that the Master is the person who literally genocided her people and is wearing her dead father as a skin suit, and she never responds to this. Yeah, that, um, that's a big know, issue. Right, and, and when you've already had this happen two or three times to Nathan Turner, what the fuck made him think that this untrustworthy companion was somehow ever going to get picked up by another writer in a useful way? You know, why does he keep trying these ongoing plot threads when he obviously can't manage them? Well, I mean, it, it could be worse. He could try to do like an untrustworthy doctor arc, and uh, thank goodness that never happened. Right. I mean, that's obviously where where we're going with this, is he keeps doubling down on this inept idea until, you know, we get the Colin Baker era. And and this you know and Turlo is for me where you really start where I really start to just look and wonder why they think this is something they can get to work given that they never have come close before. Because Turlo's really cute, <laughs> almost as cute as the puppy. Yeah, that's yes. up Ruthie. She's like, yes, Turlo is hot. That's all I need. Yes, to see. fuck yeah, Turlo. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Mark Strickson is great. I, it's just this, you know, can you ever quite trust Turlow? You know, he's supposed to have this question mark hanging over him the whole time. And he bloody well doesn't. After Enlightenment, he just becomes the, you know, slightly cowardly companion, which works sometimes. He's shirtless and tortured a lot. That works. <laughs> Let's watch that one next. <laughs> You're spoiled for choice. Yeah, there, there. Turlo gets uh, you. You get a lot of uh, Turlo uh, not wearing a lot of clothes in uh, future stories, and um, in the next I one he gets I to. Uh, why, I think I know why Jonathan Ethan Turlo, whatever his name, created Turlo. Yeah, yeah. You're not the first one to notice. Um, Tur- Turlo is the first of many somewhat scantily clad men to start showing up on the sh- on Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, boy, you can't wait till, uh, and then the next episode he gets to, uh, spend a whole, uh, a whole story staring at Tegan's ass in a, uh, in a corridor. So, um, there's always, there's always that as well. Um, it's well, kind of interesting. Sutton gets the, gets well, to, Sarah Sutton. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, very, very strange uh, way that, uh, nudity and sexuality was handled in, uh, the show in this era. Anyway, um, any final thoughts on, uh, Modern Undead or Stephen Moffat or, uh, Vox Day or Neo Reaction or... Other stuff that we didn't bring up? I'm good. Uh, you know, I think there's more we could have talked about in the episode, but I'm very happy with how uh, this conversation went. Yeah, I, I, I think this was good. Good talk. Oh, good talk. And um, Phil, I hope you do uh, come back and talk to us at another time. And, uh, oh, yeah. We can dig into... I'd love to do that. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, and uh, to all the listeners who challenged me to bring you on, uh, now Phil has been on. So congratulations. Uh, yes. Next next week, we're going to have another uh, Moffat Defender on the show to help us talk about Terminus. We're going to have uh, Nicole from the Terminus podcast um, to talk about Terminus. So I uh, look forward to that next week. And uh, until then, the TARDIS is closed. Bye. Our theme music is Doctor Who Theme on Minimoog by James Bragg. Find his YouTube channel at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 and his website at phoenix-flare.com. Daniel is also a regular host of the They Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find all Oi Spaceman episodes on iTunes or at our website oispaceman.libsyn.com, and our podcast blog is at oispaceman.wordpress.com. You can email us at oispacemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, and you can find our individual Twitter accounts at Daniel Lee Harper and Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. Comments and questions, welcome.